You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest today is Dandapani. Uh, he's a Hindu priest, an entrepreneur, and a former monk of 10 years. Yes, you heard all of that right. His TEDx talk has over 5.6 million views. Uh, he has clients and companies he's worked with like Fortress Investment Group, McKinsey, uh, Red Ventures, Nike, Amex. He's got a new book called The Power of Unwavering Focus. So I need to sort of tell on myself uh, with this. You're going to hear beeps and uh, calls and and then he's coughing. And you would think for an important topic, and it is, it's a very <laughs> important topic, how important focus is. Um, focus was kind of all over the place. And I tried to turn off certain things, but this is what happened. So the, this whole interview was a, me trying not to uh, be distracted by, by the beeps and, and other things. And I think you'll get the value of uh, our conversation. So enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Don Dapani, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for having me here with you. Uh, you write in your new book, quote, my goal in this book is not to inundate you with tools. I am a firm believer that we do not need many tools in life, rather a few tools that are aligned and serve in fulfilling our purpose in life are sufficient, end quote. And there's an adage in my field of improvisation that says you need to play the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in. And I feel like those ideas are connected. What we say in improvisation and what you're talking about in this book. Yeah, I feel like, you know, a lot of times people, uh, I see so many people on this path of collecting tools, going from one program to another program, doing one course to another course, going from one retreat to another retreat. 
thinking that the more tools they collect, the more skills they have to deal with life challenges and the more they're able to advance. I, I don't believe it's necessarily true. Uh, a woodcarver has a hammer and a chisel and has mastered the hammer and chisel over decades and can carve amazing things. Mm. You know, he or she hasn't spent years accumulating 5,000 different tools rather has only used the hammer and chisel and gained mastery. And with that, mastery over it, and with that, have able to accomplish great things. And similarly, I always say, identify first the purpose, what it is you want in life, then seek the tools that can help you get there. Not look for the tools to help you discover the purpose. Find out what it is you want then look for the tools. If I'm going to make pizza, then I need a certain set of tools and ingredients. Right. If I'm going to make an Indian feast, then I may need a whole different tool, set of tools and ingredients. I don't think it's any different with life. And, and this, this book is sort of deceptively simple. I mean, you're, you're, it, 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 it's, there's a lot going on, uh, of course, but, but this, this element, and I think, I thought it was fascinating because I've asked a bunch of people, uh, were you ever taught to focus? And the answer is always no. Um, and then, and as you remind us in the book that as young children, we're told to focus all the time and yet no one ever taught anyone how to focus. No, and you see this all the time. You know, you're waiting in line at the DMV, and there's a parent yelling at the kid, going like, can you just stop for a second? Can you just focus? Can you do this? Can you sit quietly? You know, which is also has to do with, you know, controlling energy, harnessing energy. The children have a lot of energy, and no one's taught them to harness that energy, so they can't right. sit down quietly. So they're constantly wiggling or moving. They can't focus because no one's taught them how to focus. And then we yell at them. Yeah, and, and direct them right. And, and science, we know this from science in terms of uh, learning. You'd like movement is is very much tied to learning, and that 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 idea of rigidly sitting in one place is uh, does, isn't going to ultimately serve the education. No, and, and the crazy thing is, you know, Kelly, that everything else in life, almost everything else in life, we understand that we need to learn. Mm. I there are paint classes. If I want to do painting, I can take paint classes to learn how to paint, and then I can practice so I can become good at it. If I want to be a ballet dancer, I take classes on ballet and I practice to be good at it. Same with sports. If I want to be a tennis player, you know, if I want to be a good programmer, I take classes on programming, and then I practice programming so I can be better at it. Why that should it be different for focus? You know, it, it shouldn't. Right. And for somehow, when it comes to focus, we've just skipped learning and practicing and assuming everyone should know how to do it. And if they don't, then there's just really severe consequences. Uh, one of the things I tell people, because at, at Second City, we, we, we have the art of improvisation, which is what you learn when you take classes here and what our professional folks learn. And then we offer it to a lot of corporations and, and people sort of say, well, why, why, why do you do that? And I go, because improvisation is essentially human being practice. It is the way we uh, teach ourselves to listen more effectively and collaborate more effectively. And all that goes back to how we are moving through the world. Uh, and so the very first few classes that you take as a beginner are all about focus and, and um, losing judgment of self and judgment of others. 
It's, and that is sort of crucial early work that one needs to do to be a good improviser. And I would suggest it's also crucial work for someone to be a good human. Yeah. How would you uh, define improvisation in, in the way, you, in the context you're using it? Uh, it's uh, uh, making something out of nothing with other human beings. Mm-hmm. And you know that uh, one of the key byproducts of being able to focus, you know, in the book I talk about one way to understand the mind is to understand the difference between awareness and the mind. I describe the mind as the vast space. In the book, I also give the perspective of the mind having three states, uh, the conscious mind, the instinctive mind, the subconscious, the intellectual, and then the superconscious, which is the intuitive mind. And if you stack them up as a building, the intuition, the superconscious is on the third floor. In order to access that intuition, one needs to be able to grab hold of awareness, this goal of light I described, and navigate it from the conscious mind through the subconscious into the superconscious area of the mind. Now, if they have the ability to hold that ball of light in this intuitive area of the mind, they can channel intuition through. And I think this is so key for artists, performers, Mm -hmm. creative people, is being able to hold that space in the mind, awareness in that area of the mind with unwavering focus, so that you can keep that continuity of creativity, continuity of uh, channeling of that intuition to guide you. And the inability to focus doesn't allow you to do that. No. And that's why, you know, focus is so critical. You, you see a lot of peop- uh, artists that are working on something. I give an example in the book. You know, the, the fashion designer is drawing out a dress for the fall collection. She gets interrupted at work by someone asking her, where's the photocopy paper? She turns to answer the question. She comes back to a sketch and she's lost that place in yeah. her mind. Yeah. Now she's lost the mojo. She's lost the flow and she's trying to get back there. The ability to move awareness to that area of the mind allows creativity to come through. And I would only imagine that in improvisation, uh, in the ability to be observant of seeing how the other person is and trying to mimic them or improvise a character or whatever it may be, one needs to be in the intuitive area of the mind, not in the intellectual, because right. a performer is not thinking from a moment-to-moment basis, oh, now I need to do this. Now I need to do that. Right. It doesn't work that it way. It doesn't work. I, I, no, because I, I used to dance when I was growing up. And one of the things I, I learned, when you're dancing, you don't think about each movement. Now I move my hand to the right. Now I move my hand to the left. It's a flow yes. of creativity. So that requires unwavering focus. It, allows, it requires awareness to be held in that superconscious area of the mind. And that allows creativity to flow in unbroken continuity, which then allows for performance, whether it's music, art, dance, acting, whatever it may be. Or living, living your life, work. I mean, there's, it's, it's oh, exactly right. I mean, they, they, yes. why, why would we not want to be our most creative selves? I mean, everyone has an artist inside them in some, in some regard. Yeah. And, and being in that intuitive space is the best space to be because intuition never, ever guides you wrong. Whereas the intellect is based on information that's stored in your subconscious. So if you put the incorrect information in your subconscious, then the output that you're going to get is incorrect. You know, not only does input going into the subconscious needs to be correct, it needs to be processed. 
clear conclusions need to be formed in order then for a correct intellectual answer to come out. Whereas intuition doesn't work that way. Intellect, intellect is a convoluted process to getting to an answer. Intuition comes as a flash from the superconscious area of the mind, but you can't be intuitive if you can't focus. So I want to return, and you started to touch on it there, something that was very powerful for me that I actually took into therapy, and my therapist was like also really felt it was a really useful idea. It's this, this idea of the mind as a mansion. And the idea of these different rooms and your awareness being the glowing orb and then that bringing energy. And, and, and you, you mentioned a number of times, and I think it's a really, really useful metaphor that's allowed me to sort of really work on where I, what I'm tending to in, in what I, what I thought was my mind. And I had a sort of a different view of it because of, of your work. Yes, because we, we looked at the mind as a vast space with many different areas within it. You're not the mind, rather you're pure awareness. Describe, one way to describe it is as a glowing ball of light traveling through different areas of the mind. Now, one analogy was to look at the mind as a big mansion with hundreds of rooms, each room representing a different area of the mind, anger, jealousy, uh, a birthday you celebrated at five years old at your great-grandfather's house in Italy, for example, that's a memory sitting in one room in mm-hmm. the in the mansion. All of those exist at any given point in time in your mind. Where your awareness goes to in that area of the mind, that is the area of the mind you become conscious at any given moment. So I can take my ball of light, my awareness, to an area of the mind where memory of me riding my bicycle at four years old, falling down, cutting my lip, having this injury, my parents rushing out to grab me, taking me to the doctor. Now I'm in that area of the mind, re-experiencing that again. If I move my awareness away from that, I'm no longer conscious of that memory. It doesn't make it go away. Uh, it still exists there, uh, but it's in a particular area of the mind. The beautiful thing about this, Kelly, is that a lot of times people misunderstand this. They think that, oh, that means I'm ignoring all my problems that are my subconscious. Yeah. I say that that's not the perspective. The perspective is that this understanding empowers you with the ability to choose when you want to engage with the problem. I realize it's that. It's like I have a dirty closet. It's mm. a mess. I, I don't have to see it every day. I don't have to walk into it every day. But I can say next Saturday, I'm going to go and clean it. So I have a problem, a past, just say somebody hit me when I was a kid, sitting in my subconscious, I need to deal with it. Now, okay, I understand it's there. I have an appointment with my therapist in two weeks on Tuesday. During that time, I'm going to go to that room where the memory is and deal with it. Until then, I don't need to go there. I'm not ignoring it. I'm just know that I just don't need to go there right now. I can move my awareness to a different area of the room and deal with what I need to deal with now. And and that's how the mind works. When we don't have that understanding, then we constantly keep going to that room every few minutes, stirring everything up, causing commotion in life, confusion in life, emotional upheaval in life. And then we have lack of clarity on making simple decisions as to what to eat for breakfast and what decision to make in work and life. Uh, so we're not compartmentalizing. The mind actually is compartmentalized. It, that's how it is. Yeah. It, it's another analogy I give in the book. It's, it's a big garden, right? So you think you have a thousand garden beds. 
one god in beta's anger one god in beta's flower you know uh happiness another one's sex photography technology whatever god in bed you water is what's going to grow and it all depends on how well you can control where awareness goes in the mind i was talking to my wife yesterday about this and and we we've had wonderful things happen to us we've had horrible things happen to us and she was sort of yeah. saying you know she she had this uh, sort of aha moment of like well i really need to be grateful for the garden that we have i have to be grateful for the family we have i've got to be grateful for the good meals that that we eat and and this is not always easy because we live in such a noisy time um and yeah. especially if we are allowing our phones um to guide us and that's a big thing you talk about here. Not that social media is bad. Not that these these phones are amazing. These like I mean the the power of of these things in 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 terms of what yeah. we have access to. However, we we need to be um, guiding our journey, not letting them guide us. Correct. And I always say technology is here to serve us. Not we are here to serve technology. So again, going back to defining one's purpose in life. What's your purpose? How can technology support you in fulfilling your purpose? So technology is a servant. Whereas we live, a lot of people live their lives where they are the butler, the servant to technology. Mm -hmm. Technology goes bing and they go like, yes, master, how can I serve you? The phone rings and you answer it like a servant. Literally, if you think of a mansion where a billionaire is living and they just ring the bell and the butler comes and goes like, what would you like, tea, coffee, a foot massage? And that's how we are. Mm. In this case, we are the butler, the servant, and the phone is the master. It should be the other way around. And when it's the other way around, then it's very easy to make decisions to go, okay, I don't need the phone right now. You know, the same way I have a shovel, I don't need it all day. But when I want to plant in my garden, I go grab the shovel. But if I don't need to plant anything, I don't need the shovel. Treat the phone like a shovel. Do you need to do something? And if you do, grab the phone. If you don't, put it down. There's so many other things to do in life than to be caressing this thing all day long. Mm -hmm. caress your wife your husband your kids your yes. dog <laughs> you know? no completely i had a, a reporter from the atlantic interview me last week about why she's taking improv classes and she's like blown away by the experience and she goes why why are people so interested in this and they and they are and our classes are full and and the reason i think is just that it's that for those three hours that you come into the space, you are not on your phone. You are looking someone else in the eye. The various things that we're teaching you is that your job is to save the person across from you and their job is to save you. And it's like, it's, it's the antithesis of what appears to be going on in the rest of the world with, with all the noise. And, and the problem is, you know, Kelly, is that I feel people don't have a sense of purpose. Yeah, They don't have clarity. And when you don't have clarity of what it is you want, now you leave yourself open to your environment to decide for you what you want. So then things are thrown at you. Say like, hey, try me. Hey, try this. Try that. Try me. And, and so you're responding to all these things. I, I give you an example. I live in Costa Rica now uh, with my wife and daughter, but we lived in New York for 11 years. 
I lived in Astoria, and I remember before my daughter was born, my wife and I were going to go out for dinner one night. Uh, and Astoria is really known for its food scene. And she said she wanted Thai food. So I said, okay, let's go out for Thai tonight. So evening came, we locked up on, we started walking. The restaurant's about 15, 20 minute walk away. So we're walking. I said, look, the Greeks restaurant's finally opened. Shall we go try it out? She looked at me and says, no, I want Thai food. I'm like, okay, we'll keep walking. So we walked some more for about seven, eight minutes. And they go like, how about that pizza place? We've always been wanting to try that pizza place. She goes like, I told you I want Thai food. And, and the story is to share that if you know what you want, then you know who and what you don't want. And when you know what you want in life, it's so easy then to say, well, the phone's offering me all these things. I don't actually want it because it's not aligned with what I want. We say yes to all these things around us, this noise, only because we have no clarity of what we want. My wife wanted Thai food, so I could offer her Greek, pizza, Indian, mm -hmm. Pakistani, and she's like, no, I want Thai food. I'm like, okay, honey. <laughs> we only say yes to things, to all this noise, is because we have no clarity of where we're going and what we want. And once we know, then the noise don't, doesn't exist. So tell us how... <coughs> An electric engineering uh, degree student in university becomes a Hindu monk. What, what, what is the where, where do you go from university to that? Well, I wanted to be a monk since I was about four or five years old. And, and since then, it was a quest to find a teacher that could train me. And even though I met many gurus and swamis and monks along the way, I felt none of them were aligned with what I wanted. They were not bad or good. They just, we weren't aligned. And finally, when I met my guru, I was already in university. So when I graduated from high school, I just didn't want to join the monastery because for the sake of joining a monastery, if I was going to give my life up to be a monk, then I wanted to make sure, you know, it was a monastery that aligned with me with the teacher. So I met my guru when I was in university already. And when I met him, I said, you know, I want to be a monk in your monastery, but he made me finish my electrical engineering degree. So mm -hmm. I, I spent two and a half more grueling years in university, scraping by every exam. And as soon as I knew I graduated, as soon as I knew I passed my last exam, I, I left and went to the monastery. I, I didn't even wait for my graduation. I've never seen till today my university degree. My mom has it somewhere, I know, my mom and dad, but I've never seen that piece of paper that says I'm an electrical engineer. Wow. Are, are you glad? Are you glad you finished university? Um, I'm glad I followed my guru's instructions. Okay. Yeah. You know, I the time I spent with him, I came to realize he was an extremely mature being, soul, and he was very wise in guiding me. And the more I followed his guidance, his instructions, uh, even though at times I didn't want to, the better the outcomes of my life were. Mm -hmm. You know, like a, like a loving parent might tell a four-year-old, I want you to do this, and the four-year-old or seven-year-old is going to go like, why? Yeah. I want to do this. The parent has no ulterior motive, the loving parent. You know, they just want what's best for the child. The child 
with lack of maturity is not able to see the parent's perspective. And at some point, they need to be loving and trust and in obedience, you know, uh, that faith that that person who loves you is guiding you in the right way. So he wanted me to finish my degree. I didn't want to, but mm-hmm. if that's what he wanted, then uh, that's what I was going to do. I see how it helps me today, you know, and the way I think, the way I structure things. Uh, engineering has taught me defining a goal clearly, creating a path to it, defining the steps. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you quote your guru as <laughs> quote, where, where awareness goes, energy flows. And you also have this jungle metaphor that you use, which I think is also uh, useful with regard to like, I was thinking about for myself in terms of the the ruts that exist in 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 where where I've been putting my awareness in certain places and recognizing that I've, I've there's a deep groove there because that's where I'm putting yeah. my awareness and that perhaps if I don't want that deep groove I can shift my awareness to a, a, another place. So can you talk a little bit about that? Can we talk about the minus of our space? And if awareness travels from A to B repeatedly, it creates a path in the mind. The same way in the in the book, I give an example where an explorer is exploring the jungles in Costa Rica. After hiking for seven, eight hours, he comes to a beautiful waterfall. He wants to tell everybody about it. So he carves a little path. And, you know, 10 years later, there's a really clear path because thousands of people have walked that path to the waterfall. Our mind is no different. If you observe our mind, some people, awareness, have, for whatever reason, are prone to go to a negative area of the mind. If something happens, it's a negative reaction. Mm-hmm. It's a doom and gloom reaction. And awareness has traveled from A in the mind to doom and gloom over and over a thousand times. Now there's a deep rut. So no matter what happens in life, there's a traffic jam and we're going to miss our flight. That's it. We're going to miss our flight. We should cancel our holiday, call the hotels right now. We're never going to get to our flight in time. And that's the reaction, even though the traffic may only last five minutes. That's the default reaction. We all have that. So we have to be really important where awareness goes to repeatedly in the mind. If it keeps repeatedly going there, we're creating a path to that area of the mind. Similarly, it can also work in a positive way. So if you're an improv person and you want to go to this place of spontaneity, spontaneity, creativity, then move awareness to that area of the mind where you can get into that area of the mind where you can be creative, you can get into a flow of character or whatever you may want to be. That area of the mind exists. As soon as you can identify where that area of the mind is, then figure out, watch, observe how that ball of light travels that. And then repeatedly go to that area of the mind, come back, go back there again, come back, go back there again, come back, do this a thousand times, and eventually you'll have a rut going to that area of the mind. Now, you want to get to that improv state of mind? You can do that in two seconds mm-hmm. because the mind doesn't decide, doesn't know. You've created that groove, that drain going there. It's right. Awareness is just going to fall into that groove and slide all the way there to that area of the mind. Uh, and a, that's the beautiful thing of understanding awareness in the mind. That's right. There's a scientist by the name of Dr. Charles Lim, who we worked with. He uh, put improvisers of many different kinds. He did rappers. He did jazz 
uh, folk and then comedy uh, theatrical improvisers under an fMRI and had them both do scripted uh, or written work and then had them improvise. And when they were improvising, literally a different part of the brain network lit up and another one went down. The one that went down is, is the self is the judgment uh, of self and, and the sort of creativity. So literally we're in a different brain state when we are improvising. Yes. And, and in the monastery for our meditations, our guru would outline maps of the mind so that when the monks sat down to meditate together, we had a path to take us from an external state of mind, from the conscious state, to a deeper superconscious state. But why create a new path each time? Right. It wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, if I want to go and see uh, a waterfall in a national park, one path to get there is enough for everyone. We don't need to create a thousand different paths getting to the same waterfall. So uh, the mind works the same way. Identify which area of the mind you want to go to. Repeatedly going there creates a path to that area of the mind. <coughs> Sorry. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, you don't love the word mindfulness. Is that correct? I would say I don't love it. I just think it's just so misused. Talk about that. Yeah, if you... Okay. As you know, as reading the book, I define words as I go along. Yes. Right. And the reason I do that is because the word meditation, for example, I bring up in the book. People say to me all the time, you know, when I walk my dog, that's my meditation. When I cook, that's my meditation. Mm-hmm. And then other people, monks, say to me, or when I was a monk, when I sit down cross-legged, close my eyes, control my breath, control where my awareness goes in my mind, that's my meditation. I'm super confused. Mm-hmm. What are we doing right now, Kelly? Is this a podcast interview? I think so. Yeah. When you talk to your wife at mm-hmm. dinner, is that a podcast interview? It is not. What would you call that? Um, Conversation? But- conversation i mean when when i'm when i am um good kelly uh i am putting my focus completely on her what she's both what she's saying to me but maybe what she isn't saying to me when i'm bad kelly i'm half listening (laughs) and enjoying my good food but you're having a conversation with her right the point i'm trying to make is that this is a podcast interview you don't call having a conversation with your wife a podcast interview no when you talk to your neighbor or friend you don't call that a podcast interview. So why would you say everything is meditation? People mm-hmm. misuse words and abuse it. You know, yeah. like you're walking your dog, that's walking your dog. That's not a meditation. So the same way with mindfulness, I feel it's so abused. If you look at the actual definition of mindfulness, it, you know, I, I give the Oxford de- definition and the Webster's definition, you know, just mm-hmm. to be really clear from different perspectives of what the actual world actually means. And what it's trying to say is that you are aware or conscious from a moment-to-moment basis, meaning that you're very conscious of what's happening each moment. You're very mindful. But that state of being aware or conscious on a moment-to-moment basis is a byproduct of being concentrated. If I can keep my ball of light, my awareness on you, and stay focused, like you said, you're talking to your wife, your awareness is on her only, not drifting anywhere else, then you can be conscious 
from a moment-to-moment basis of what she is saying, not saying, and doing, or not doing. Now you're being mindful. You don't practice mindfulness. You practice concentration. The resulting effect of concentration is being mindful. You're not going, okay, this moment she's talking. Next moment, she's still talking. She's still talking. You're not doing that. No. You're just keeping your awareness on her. When you can concentrate, you become conscious from a moment to bed. So when people go around saying, practice mindfulness, that's erroneous. You don't practice mindfulness. You practice concentration. Mindfulness is a state, a byproduct of concentration. The same way, don't pursue happiness. Pursue a lifestyle where the byproduct of the lifestyle results in happiness. You spend time with your wife, you feel happy. You spend time with people that you interview and have these conversations. It makes you happy. So how do you design a lifestyle that results in the feeling of happiness? You don't actually pursue happiness. Can you be happy right now? Can you be happy right now? You don't do that. No. The same way you don't practice mindfulness, you practice concentration. Mindfulness comes as a byproduct. Observation, which is similar to mindfulness, is a byproduct of a prolonged of a state of concentration. If I can focus on you, keep my ball of light on you, not jumping all over the place, I can be observant that you're wearing kind of a green shirt. Mm-hmm. You've got a black frame or dark frame glasses. Yeah. You have whitish hair, grayish mm-hmm. hair. You probably haven't shaved yesterday or today. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, you've uh-huh. got pictures in the back of your uh, your room. I am observant now, but I can only be observant because I'm focused. I can only be mindful because I'm focused. Does that all make sense? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and uh, somewhat depressingly so, given the, the world I live in presently, um, because there's such a supreme lack of focus, listening, empathy, um pause uh, uh graciousness gratitude the the and 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 i mean literally my therapist was like you have to stop listening to political podcasts for a while and i'm like okay all right and 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 i realized you know again after reading your book too i'm like oh because i i don't want my attention there um i love philosophy so let me go look up a philosophy so i can hear people talk about plato and and that that and then that gives me some some joy and some and some moments to, uh you know of, of respite uh from this thing yeah. and, and and improv is all about listening it, it is that that is probably the biggest thing we're teaching and you write about that in the book you say quote the ability to listen is a trait high on the endangered list of rapidly vanishing human qualities so how, how do you see this playing out in in your world <clears throat> this lack of listening by, le- by by learning to focus yeah. Because if I can't focus, I can't listen. If you're talking to me and my awareness, my ball of light is shifting somewhere else, my head is trained subconsciously to nod at you and go, hmm, that's interesting, mm. fascinating. But my awareness is somewhere else. Have you ever had your wife say to you, Kelly, uh, where are you? Oh, countless times. <laughs> technically, based on the book, the technically correct question would be what? Mm-hmm. where's your awareness right mm-hmm. because if your wife asked you where are you the correct answer is i'm right here honey in front of you but if she were to ask you based on the book where is your awareness right now she goes my physical body is in front of you nodding its head at your conversation 
Yeah. But my awareness is checked out. It's gone somewhere else in my mind, engaged in a different area of my mind. Therefore, I'm not listening. Even though I'm physically here, my head is trained to nod every time your lips move. My awareness is somewhere else. How am I listening? So how can I be a good improv person when I can't listen? And I can't listen if I can't focus. That's right. And this book is all about learning how to focus. I was, I live And here. also one will think, Kelly, with the improv, you were telling, again, I, I don't know much about improv, but you were saying earlier that part of it is observing the person you're with, mm-hmm. responding to them, reacting to them, the things they say and don't say. Mm-hmm. But I can't be observant of those things if I can't focus. One of the things I say in the book is observation is a byproduct of prolonged states of concentration. If I can concentrate with the person I'm with, I can observe all the things they're saying, not saying, doing and not doing their body language, which then helps me to respond in kind and be a better improv person. And if I can't focus, I can't observe, then I can't be good at what I, I do. And, and there's, there's limits to how long we can focus in, in, in my, no. In our, there's no, there's none. No, that's not, you know, uh, I have met many people who can be distracted for hours at end for 12 uh, hours a day. That's, that's true. So if you can do that, so you can do the other. I can focus not because I know magic or I'm some enlightened monk. No, it's just what I've been practicing. Mm. I have trained over the years to keep my awareness on one thing or one person at a time. My mind doesn't know to do anything different. Mm -hmm. The same way Joe has trained his ball of light to jump from one thing to another to another to another all day. So for him to practice distraction 14 hours a day, it's not an incredibly difficult task. So I can do 14 hours a day. Is that all you want me to be distracted? Pizza cake. That's like amateur stuff. I can do 20 hours of distraction a day. No problem. And he doesn't have to work at it because it's the patterns we've created, right? We talked about those ruts we create. The mind works on patterns. So much of the subconscious is based on patterns. Anything you repeat over and over again creates a pattern. Whether it's positive or negative, it doesn't matter to the mind. It's just a pattern. Distraction is a pattern. Concentration is a pattern. And I say, it's really hard for a distracted person to be concentrated because that's not what he's been practicing. That's why when a distracted person tries to focus, he goes like, well, I can't concentrate for long periods of time. That's so exhausting. Of course it is. If you ask me to be distracted for more than half an hour, it will be terribly exhausting for me because I have no practice. And the patterns in my mind don't support that. So I'm trying something new, which is very exhausting to do. So I think I, I conflated a couple of things when I asked that last question, because I, I recently had a sports psychologist on the podcast who was talking quite rightly about the need for rest with regard to like not pushing athletes to a certain past a certain way. But yeah. then of course, you can stay focused on first the task of shooting a basketball and then focus on your rest. That's, yes. Yeah. Exactly. And get well, here's one thing. I've worked with professional athletes at the highest level. Mm-hmm. They haven't been taught how to concentrate. For a few years I coached one of the best soccer players in the world. He was never was never taught how to concentrate. No one gave him training on how to concentrate. And he's at the peak of professional soccer. 
So ask coaches out there, ask the coach, the next coach that comes on your show, have you ever taught any of your players to concentrate? Right. Then ask them the question, have you ever said to their team, guys, there's 20 seconds left on the clock. I need all of you to go out there and really focus. <laughs> I bet you coaches say that all the time to their players. I need you to go out there and focus. Guys, there's two minutes left on the clock. We're seven points behind. Guys, you have to be super focused when you go out there, okay? Just be hyper-focused. Execute on what we've talked about. Okay? You've talked about the plan. We're very clear about that. But I think the focus part is missing. You want us to do the focus out in the court, but you haven't taught us how to do that, nor have we even practiced it. Now, what the hell does focus even mean? Right. I think I think so, great, great coaches, though, do like Phil, Phil Jackson, when he coached the Bulls, was famous for this sort of improvisatory uh, flow, uh, having people focus on on the, the ball going to certain places and, and you know, the, uh, cr- creating not group think, but group mind. Yeah, but the actual act of focusing, what does that even mean? Going to the basics of understanding awareness in the mind, keeping awareness on one thing at a time, practicing that throughout the day, not only when you're in court, but when you're off court too. Right, right. right. You know, are you practicing that? How many players are doing one thing at a time when they're not on the court? Are they texting? Are they multitasking throughout the day, talking to people, texting? If they're practicing distraction throughout the day, how do you expect them to focus when they're on court? It, how long is a basketball game? Yeah, a couple hours. couple hours? Okay, so a couple hours they're playing on court. There's 22 hours left in the game. Just mm-hmm. say they sleep for eight hours, which then gives you, what, six, eight, 14 hours left in the day. And the 14 hours, so two hours in court, eight hours sleeping, you got what? So that's... Uh, uh, two, two and eight, ten. Yeah, fourteen hours left in the day. What are they doing in that fourteen hours? Are they practicing distraction and concentration? If they were practicing concentration for those fourteen hours, only then can they come to court concentrating. If in that fourteen hours they're multitasking, they're looking at their phone, talking to people, being distracted, then don't expect them to come to court. Say to them, guys, now we're going to focus on doing this, focus on doing that. Doesn't work. Mm. can't do one thing off court and do another thing on court. It doesn't work that way. You'd have better players if you taught them how to concentrate. That's right. Hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. This is the way we always end the podcast. Uh, and the idea here is that <clears throat> our natural tendency uh, is often to say no or do nothing. Uh, and yes, and is a nudge against that. It's it's a way that we can um, accept an offer and, and contribute a, an idea back that builds upon that offer. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, do you have a moment in your life where you were maybe going to do a no and did a yes, and instead? I would say with this book, you know, mm. for many years, people have said like, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I, I just said no. It makes sense. I created online courses, which I thought was a better way to go in a digital world. Yeah, <clears throat> You don't have to carry the book around. It's always in your pocket. You pull out your phone, listen to the course, repeat the course. And then my wife is one of the main people that really encouraged me and pushed me towards writing it. And in the process of writing the book, 
it allowed me to rewrite it like three times, mm -hmm. you know, and, and really structure it and gain so much clarity on articulating each piece and structuring it and creating a flow. And yeah, it, it, it really changed a lot of things for me in the process of writing, which is very different than just recording a course. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a fair amount of research uh, that keeps coming up in terms of what it means to write our ideas down um, and the power that that can have, whether through a therapeutic method or a learning method. Um, and then for me, as a as a reader of the book, it was just um, what I appreciated was this sort of repetitive clarity, because really, while it's simple, our tendency as human beings is is to, is is to waver and become unfocused. So this this return of like, here's the definitions. Let's say it again and let's understand that it really worked for me and and has been uh, something that I found um, powerful uh, for, for me in my journey. And and because I'm I think I'm 56. I just turned 56, and really the last few years have been about I really want to understand my purpose and and I think I do and and you know it, it's a journey but generally speaking I'm 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 pretty happy and I'm happy when my purpose is being um when I have the focus to be able to do the things uh and put my attention uh to the places that yeah. um are important to me and the repetition is key right Kelly I've done like a 3 hour workshop where in that 3 hours I said awareness in the mind you're not the mind you're pure awareness moving through the mind the mind doesn't move, awareness moves within the mind, you can control where it goes. I must repeat that, I don't know, a hundred times in three hours. Mm -hmm. At the end of the three-hour workshop, I'll have a person come up to me and go like, yeah, that was really interesting. It's, you know, I never heard it. And I always struggle because my mind's always wandering everywhere. And I go like, I just spoke for the last three hours to tell you your mind doesn't move. It's your awareness that moves right. in the mind. So I could repeat it a hundred times and someone right. will come and tell me something different. And I've had that happen like a thousand times. <laughs> well, so <I'm> like, <laughs> we're tricky figures as human beings. Uh, the, book is called, <laughs> the book is called The Power of Unwavering Focus. Dandapani, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Kelly, for having me. Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.